Today's scripture is from Genesis chapter 22. So if you are able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, behold, Milcah also has born children to your brother Nahor. Uz his firstborn, Buzz his brother. Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazel, Pildash, Jedloth, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Tabah, Gaham, Tahash, and Makkah. This is the word of the Lord. God, thank you for today. Would you speak to Ryan? Uh, we love you, God, and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Megan, he's gunning for your job. Reading the hard names? <laughs> it's okay. You'll, t- you'll take a substitute. Oh, man, it's so good to be with you guys today and opening God's Word uh, together. Um, I got to confess, I've got a complicated relationship with Genesis chapter 22. All right, now here's the story. This is the only sermon that I've ever prepared to preach and not been able to preach it. So here's the backstory on that. Um, 
I was a youth pastor in Indianapolis for several years uh, before we moved to Atlanta. And uh, one of the things you got to know about a youth pastor's job is this. Uh, we're good at several, th- like we're, we're extraordinary at several unique things, specific set of skills. One of them is we, 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 got, we got a game in our back pocket at any time of the day. That's, that's one thing. The other thing is, is we are the kings of illustrations and object lessons. Sometimes so much to the degree that we forget to actually preach the Bible, okay? So this was one of those situations, I think. So here, I really wanted to illustrate the tension of Abraham being on top of his son Isaac with the knife because he's listening to God and what that must have felt like, right? I mean, we read this and that's one of the reasons we hear this story and we think, God, this cannot be real. And so in my mind, I kind of thought, you know, what would create that amount of tension? And so I got a blender and I I put the blender on the stage and I plugged the blender in. I put water in the blender. There's water on the blender. Uh, The blender's plugged in. And a couple days before I was going to preach, I bought a goldfish. And, um, and the goldfish, I named him Ike, short for Isaac. Um, and, um, and so I put Ike in the blender um, with the water in it, and it was plugged in. And as I was in my mind, here's how it was going to work out. The, the fish was going to be swimming around, like doing his thing. People are going to be like, what in the world is that? But whatever, you know, I've seen stranger things. Maybe not actually. But, um, and, and so then, then when we got to the point of the text where it was really the tense point, I was going to uh, describe what was happening, lift up the blender, show that the power was actually on in the blender, then sit the blender back down, and then go to press the button another time to create the tension. And my friend Morgan, who was on staff with me, was going to be behind the curtain. And he was, we had prepared this, he was going to unplug the blender at just the right time, right? Just the right time. And I got a stomach bug the night before and could not preach. I think that was God's mercy. <laughs> could you imagine how bad that would have gone if I pureed a goldfish on the stage? I would have never, I wouldn't be here today, I promise. Uh, anyway, so, I, but I share the story with you because one, I can, can't ever share it again. But uh, the other thing is, is I think that's the way that we typically view what's happening in Genesis 22. How could God do this? How could God require this? And we, we typically think about this in such a way where we think, you know, that should probably not be in the Bible. It seems like cosmic child abuse. Shouldn't be allowed to be there. Child sacrifices, that can't be God. And I think that we forget a little bit of God's character and what sin has earned us as mankind when we take that approach. Because God's character, and we're going to be looking at God's character a lot today, God's character and his attributes are that he is loving and gracious and merciful. That, that is one uh, set of attributes and characteristics of God's nature. But he is also a God of wrath and justice. And typically what happens uh, in the church is we emphasize or de-emphasize one of those and we don't hold them in tension the way that uh, the Spirit would draw us to. And so uh, what I, in order to kind of recenter our frame, I want to remind us or maybe teach us a little bit about uh, what God requires because of sin. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the law of the firstborn real quick. So if you've got a Bible, I want you to flip it open to Exodus chapter 13. And I, I think this will help us have a little bit more of a humble approach coming into Genesis 22 today. So um, the f- firstborns in the Bible are significant. Have you noticed that? 
They are, um, um, they, they're the ones that get the double inheritance. Um, they're the ones that kind of have the most responsibility in the family. And, and God requires the most out of them, actually. Um, and so um, Exodus 13, 1 and 2, this is, this is um, you know, p- part of the Exodus here. Um, firstborn children were considered uh, forfeit, meaning they were surrendered to the Lord. That was, that was God's command and requirement for firstborn uh, male children. Um, and that's why you, you see that even like prior to, prior to the golden calf moment, like all the firstborn, they just immediately were enlisted as priests, firstborn males. And even you see in the, the early days of the Catholic church, typically your firstborn son would have gone into the ministry. It's just kind of the way it happened. And, uh, and so they, they were dedicated to the Lord. Um, and so, um, so kind of keeping that in mind, let's hear what God requires because of sin in Exodus 13. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast is mine. Uh, going down to verse 11, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all the first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem it with a lamb. Or if, you're, or, if you, um, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons, you shall redeem. So notice that it's required, but God says you should redeem it. That's key. And when in the time of your, uh, when, when the time comes and your son asks, what does this mean, dad? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord has brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand, on the frontlets between your eyes, for a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So what's going on here? Why do I share this with you? Well, when we think about the story of Abraham and Isaac, he's the firstborn son. Uh, so what this means is that he is the Lord's. I mean, and as Christians, we say all of our children are the Lord's, but in, in the time of the Mosaic law, it was, it was, it was expected that, that, um, that the firstborn son would be required to be the Lord's. And so even in a kind of a meta-narrative approach, a bigger picture is the Lord is setting in pattern. He's setting in motion the pattern of redemption. How will redemption come about in history? He is revealing to Abraham both sides of his character, right? Both his mercy and his love and his grace, but also his justice and his hatred towards sin. That's why he says, I require him, but you can redeem him. You see, a lot of times we forget that as we walk with God, that we had to be redeemed. We just walk in the grace and the mercy and we forget the cost. That's what's at stake in misunderstanding Genesis chapter 22 today. So when you, he's tying it to the Exodus, right? Uh, and the Exodus, you remember what the last plague that was administered against the Egyptians from the Lord was? The death of every firstborn male. The, past, the only way that, that the Jewish little boys were passed over is by what? 
blood on the doorpost, right? It's all painting this picture that the only way to be ransomed and redeemed is through blood. The only thing that separates those Jewish little boys who were passed over and those Egyptian little boys that image God too that were slain was the blood. It's the only thing that makes me and you different than any unbeliever on the face of the planet is the blood of Christ. That's it. It's the only thing. And so what this does is this humbles us, church, as we come in and we hear this story today. And, uh, you know, instead of operating from a posture of, of only half of God's character by just saying, you know, I'm just going to see a God of love and grace and mercy, we need to understand what sin costs. Because then Jesus means all the more to us when we see what he's actually paid to redeem us. Um, so here's our big idea today. And uh, this, is, this is significant because this, this is really what the name of the mount is called and really what Christ is for us. And it's this, whatever God requires, he provides. So when Abraham looks back on this situation and God's miraculous intervention and provision, he says, I don't want to forget this. I don't ever want to forget that God provides, that he's Jehovah Jireh. And on that mount, Mount Moriah will be what becomes Jerusalem, where the temple will be built, where sacrifices will be given, you know, year after year, week after week for the forgiveness of sins. And it will be also the same region that the final sacrifice is given on Calvary, right? You see this picture that God is painting for us. It's a beautiful picture. So what I'm gonna do today is I just, I wanna walk us through Genesis 22 and then I've got three takeaways on, on how we need to see God's provision to us in kind of a multifaceted way. So just, if you've got a Bible, it'll be helpful. Um, crack it open to Genesis 22. I'm just gonna kind of storytell our way through the text today. So let me remind you what it says here. Uh, let's read verses one and two. After these things, God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I should tell you. Now, what you're going to notice in Genesis 22 is that there are some places where it seems like Moses is like hitting fast forward on the story, and other, other times he's kind of pausing and inviting us to consider what's happening. Genesis, uh, the first two verses here are a time that he's slowing it down for us to hear the heart behind it. So what, what we notice here is that this is a test. What's happening is a test, and what we see uh, in hindsight is that Abraham really knew that God uh, never intended for him to really offer his son up. Um, but it was a test to, to reveal Abraham's faith to himself. Now, Abraham, uh, so Isaac at this point, how old is Isaac? Well, here's what we know. We don't have his uh, definite age. Uh, we know that he's probably somewhere between around seven and 15 years old. And the reason I say that is because, um, one, he's, he's, he's weaned, right? He's going away from mom for three days and he can eat. So he's a big old boy now. And uh, the second thing we see is that he's big enough to carry a stack of wood up a mountain. And the third thing we see is this. He has a little bit of knowledge about sacrifice and worship. 
And so that tells us that, that he's of an age where he can wrestle with his faith. You know, sometimes when our kids are younger, they, they can't yet wrestle with their faith, but they, our, our hope and our prayers that they get to the place where they can. He's at, he's at that age, whatever that is. That's important for us to know because if he wanted to get away from his 125-year-old dad, he probably could, right? He probably could if he's, if he's 15, right? So that's important for us to know because obedience plays out both ways. It plays out for Abraham and it plays out for Isaac. He was discipled into a faith that leads to obedience. So we, we see that at play here, but there's also a lot more going on in these first two verses. Um, Isaac was the center of Abraham and Sarah's life. Some of us uh, know what it's like to wait for a kid for a long time. Some of us know what it's like to struggle with infertility. None of us have waited 90 years. 90 years for the promise of God to be fulfilled. 90 years for life to move on. None of us have waited that long. Isaac was at the center of their hearts. Notice how Moses slows down in the language that he, he uses, he says, take your son, but not only your son, take your only son, and not only your only son, the son whom you love. Church, consider this. This is the first time in the Bible the word love is used. Mm-hmm, fact check me. It's the first time. I find it interesting the first time that God uses the word love is to describe a relationship between a father and a son. There's something there for us to think about. There's something that Abraham is able to connect with in God's heart because he has a son and because he has an only son and because he has a son that God is going to call him to be willing to sacrifice. There's something there for us. God is Abraham's friend. He speaks face to face with Abraham doesn't he? He speaks face to face with him. He has dinner with Abraham. That's the kind of relationship God wants with you, church. Because we are Abraham's offspring, we get to enjoy by faith that same type of connection and fellowship with God. Don't make the mistake of putting God on this power trip, power hungry, wrathful, vengeance, sin kick when you read the Old Testament. Don't make that mistake because he's a God who loves deeply. He loves you and he loves I as well. So let's continue reading what's going on here. This is what he's asking him. How does Abraham respond to that? Verse three, Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and he took two of his young men from his tribe with him and his son Isaac. Now, keep in mind, it's only between he and Abraham at this time, as far as we know. But notice, notice this, guys. Abraham is a different man than he was a few chapters ago. Do you remember in Genesis, I think it's 13, when the famine comes? If you've been here with us, Genesis 13, when the famine comes, after God's called Abraham into, uh, into the land that he's gonna show him, right? Um, from Ur, what does he do when the famine comes? He takes matters into his own hands, and what's he do? He goes to Egypt. He goes down to Egypt. A bunch of bad stuff happens. He ends up getting rich. Lot and him come out. Then there's all kinds of chaos that ensues, right? Then another thing happens where 
You know, Sarah suggests, you know, Abraham, we're kind of getting older. You know, uh, I don't know how much life you've got left in you. The promise kind of hangs on us having a son and we don't have one. So why don't you have Hagar, right? And so Abraham, he, he comply, you know, he, he's compliant in the situation and, he, and he, he goes and he does that. He takes matters into his own hands. But also in the, in, the, in the scene where God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham, what, what does he do in that scene for the sake of Lot? He starts to barter and negotiate with God, right? His obedience is, uh, it's, not, it's not instant obedience. It's more of a immature kind of faith. Not, I'm not saying that we can't wrestle with God. He can handle that. But there's a certain maturity to notice about where Abraham's at in his walk with God. Uh, there's, there's a certain maturity to, to know when God calls you to something to be to silently and fully obey something is a different level of obedience. And I and get it. All of, our, all of the faith that God's given us is meant to grow, right? If it's not tested, we can't know that we're growing, right? Um, because our faith is what connects us to the redemption we have in Christ. That's why faith is important. Faith isn't important if it doesn't connect us to Jesus. It's important because it connects us to Jesus. And so this faith is being exercised that's ultimately connecting Abraham to Jesus. And he's, a, he's in a different place. Just like when you look at your walk with God, you're in a different place than you were 10 years ago, you know, two months ago. You're in a different place because that's how faith works. It works like a muscle. The more that it's exercised, the more that it grows. And the, the more that it grows, the more that you really believe that Jesus Christ has saved you and not the, the, the things that you've gotten yourself into. Um, and so we read, read this on what happens. He, he cuts the wood for the burnt offering. He rises up and he goes to the place that God tells him. So he's on the journey for three days. And what we hear is that Abraham lifts up his eyes. He sees the place from afar. And Abraham says to his young men, uh, young men that are with him, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. And here's the key. I'll come again to you. So Abraham takes the wood of the burnt offering. Look at this picture. He lays it on Isaac, the wood. He lays it on Isaac, who's his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they go, both of them together, and Isaac says to his father, remember, he's, he's at this place where he's, he's, he's maturing in his faith, Isaac is. He starts to connect the dots, doesn't he? He says, okay, uh, my father, behold the, the fire and the wood, but, 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 but dad, where's, where's the lamb? There's not gonna be a lamb up on this mountain. That's not where lambs hang out. They don't hang up on the top of a mountain, dad. Where is the lamb, dad? Listen to what Abram says. God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And that was enough. That was enough for Isaac. So they go up on this mountain together. Verse five to me is amazing because what he's declaring in faith, he can't see how this thing's gonna work out. What he's declaring in faith is that God's gonna, this is on God, not on me. My job is to obey, God's job is to provide. How much of our lives would be sorted out in a much more healthy place if we got that right? My job is to obey, God's job is to provide. But I would say, especially in our context in America, we fully believe that our job is to provide. And we spend our lives trying to provide ourselves with things that God does not require, all the while neglecting the thing that God does require. This is, 
the difference here. Megan and I were talking last night about this, like how, like, especially where we live, like it is, the natural drift for us is excess. It's excess. Like we have to work not, you know, not to live in excess. Like it takes faith not to live in excess for us. Think about how twisted that is. It takes faith for us not to overconsume. And so it's, it's just interesting that, that this is what's going on here. And so Abraham's like, God, you've got to provide. So for Abraham, the situation was this, that um, as he had racked his brain for those three silent days, I, I can bet that he had a lot of prayer time with the Lord. I don't know how much he shared with the two boys and his son Isaac, or if it was kind of a silent, awkward you know, trip uh, to Moriah. But what I do know is this, is that in Abraham's mind, he had come to this conclusion um, that, that it was more plausible for a miracle to happen than for a contradiction of God's character to happen. That's the place that he got himself to. So my question to you is you think about when you get to the end of the road and God tells you to take a next step, whatever that is for you, is it more plausible for God's character to be a contradiction or for a miracle to occur? Something, for God to put something together that you can't see? Because that's the place that Abraham had got himself to. I can't imagine that moment where Abraham is talking to his boy Isaac. You know, I'm looking at my boys over here. I just can't imagine them asking, hey dad, where's, where's the sacrifice? What are we gonna offer up today? I know that worship is about sacrifice. And him looking at his son with tears in his eyes and a quivering voice as he gets closer to laying his son on that stack of wood. And he says, God himself will provide the lamb for the offering, my son. Now what a moment for Isaac, right? What a moment for Abraham. What God requires, he always provides, church. Do you know what God requires of you? He requires perfect adherence to his word. That's what God requires of you. That is the only way that you will spend eternity with him. Isn't that terrifying? It should be. Our view of his holiness ought to increase as I say that. James, the book of James says that if you stumble in one part of the law, it's like you've disobeyed the whole thing. This is why the perfect sacrifice of Christ is so significant for us. Because it's only the fact that he is in our place that we can have any life now or in eternity. Let's, let's go on to read the rest of uh, uh, the, the next five verses in Genesis 22. And I want you to think about Jesus. As, as I want you to listen uh, for the similarities in Jesus's life here. When they came to this place, which God had told him, Abraham builds an altar and he lays the wood in order and he binds his willing son, Isaac, on the altar, on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand and took his knife to slaughter his son. And the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He probably was, there's not a time in his life he's more glad to hear his name, right? And the story slows down again here. 
Abraham responds the same way he has every time God's called his name, here I am. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know, now I know, Abraham, you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son. Listen to how the story slows down more. Your only son for me, Abraham. Abraham lifted up his eyes. We don't know if this ram was here before or not, but all we know is that Abraham sees it now. And behold, was a ram, which is a male sheep, and it's caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now think about this ram. This, this ram could have been there the whole time. Maybe it just appeared. But it's caught. It's caught in this thicket of thorns. It's, it's not trying to get out as far as we can tell. Isaac isn't trying to get off of the altar as far as we can tell. They're both there. The, 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 the sacrifices is there. The one that deserves it, the one that doesn't deserve it. They're both there. The one that gets to walk three, the one that's slain. They're both there. Both have blood in their veins. Both could be sacrificed from a justifiable perspective in God's sight. God is showing us his heart in this passage. This story is connecting Abraham and Isaac to our father and his only son, Jesus. The one who will go up the mountain with the wood on his back in the same region. The one who will be put on the cross on Calvary and the one whom the knife will not stop on, Jesus. And it's for me and it's for you and it's because God loves us. John 3, 16. You learned it at VBS when you were a kid. Some of you still have it memorized. For God so loved the world that he gave his, what? What did he give? Only son. Why did he slow it down with Abraham to remind him that he knew what it was like to have an only son so that we would not perish but have eternal life? He's pointing to the one that will earn redemption for us, church. He's pointing to the one that he's always been for us. I'm going to read the next four verses here just because it's interesting how, how clear it gets. The angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. In other words, this promise depends on me and me alone and my faithfulness. Because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice, Abraham. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Notice that the language here 
is, is interesting because he says, um, in your offspring shall possess the gate of the enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth will be uh, blessed. The, the, uh, notice how the angel speaking of, of the singular offspring here. The, the Lord is connecting the covenant with Abraham to the new covenant that Christ has won for the church. It's an amazing promise. And he, he, he reiterates the promise, right? This promise has been true all along. Uh, and, and God has been working faith into Abraham that, that he's actually going to have a son and that son is actually going to live and he's actually going to have offspring. We'll notice in the next chapter that, that, that Abraham takes a further step toward the promise of the land, the home of God's people. It's, it's just kind of this, this promise that's opening up as God is working obedience into Abraham's heart and life, all the while connecting him further to his own heart. See, God doesn't just want your obedience. He doesn't just want your, your good works. Martin Luther has a quote where he says that, you know, your, your, your good works are actually more for your neighbor than they are for your relationship with God. What he's working into us is a, a transformed heart of faith. And this is something that grows over time. So I just want to leave you with, uh, with three practical takeaways as we kind of look at how God provides and what that means for us. For, it's three words. The first one is this, testing. God provides for us. He increases our faith by testing our faith. You think about this. Faith is what? It's a gift from God. That's what Ephesians 2 tells us. And it's also necessary for salvation. It's a gift from God. It's, it's useless if it's not connected to Jesus. And each and every one of us in this room have faith in something. Most of you have faith in those chairs that you're sitting in. Some of them are a little iffy. I get it. But uh, Brandon's laughing because he knows. Um, we, have, we have faith in a lot of things. We have faith that we're going to get a paycheck on Friday, right? We have faith that our children are going to wake up the next morning. We have faith in lots of faith, but only faith that is connected to salvation in Jesus and Jesus alone is defined as saving faith. God, his, his whole ambition for us is to grow in greater uh, trust and discovery of the saving faith that is found in trusting in Christ. This is why Jesus' bold little brother uh, talks about what a joy it is to have our faith tested. Most of us spend our lives avoiding the test James says that actually, actually the tests give us greater assurance of the faith. Listen to what it says in James chapter one, verses two through four. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, all of us wanna be perfect and complete in Christ, lacking nothing, but we don't wanna be tested. And the thing is, is that God loves you so much, he doesn't care if you want to be tested or not. He's going to test you. But the question is, is what are you, what are you going to discover and how is your faith going to be impacted as you see that God has sovereignly let things hit your life that you would never choose for yourself? He's growing your awareness of the faith that he has gifted to you upon your conversion. It's your experience of life that grows the faith that he has gifted to us. So our obedience to these tests that we have, they don't save us. Thank God, right? 
I mean, if so, Abraham, he wouldn't have got out of Ur, right? Barely, right? He definitely would still be in Egypt. Um, the same thing is true for you. Whenever you think about the various tests or temptations that have been in front of you that you've kind of just kind of got an F on, what, how have you grown through those experiences? How has your relationship deepened with God? You see, because if you have a relationship that understands that the character of God is both that he has, that wrath has to be satisfied, but also he's gracious and loving, you understand that, that discipline, when it comes from the Lord, is love. Discipline that comes from the Lord is love, and it comes through testing. That's how we realize it. That's how we realize the discipline of the Lord, right? So what is it that's in front of you right now that you might be mistaking as a problem instead of a gift? What is it that's in front of you right now that, that could be a test for your faith to reveal more and more of what God is putting you through Christ? What is that for you? And what would it look like for you to take a step toward faithfulness and obedience in the midst of the question marks? Second word is this, mystery. That's a good Presbyterian word. We like that one. Mystery. There's a lot of mystery in the Bible. Mystery it, for, in this context is learning to hold God's grace and his holiness intention. So God's grace and mercy and love and his holiness and the way that he satisfies wrath and his justice. We've got to hold those intention. And that's the only person that ever does that is Jesus, right? He's the only one that does, does both of those things at the same time. Because the temptation of this passage is to isolate the character of God and thus minimize his majesty. To, to, to reduce God into our image instead of seeing that his image is far more grand than ours. On one hand, we might, we might look at this passage and say, come on, God, I can't believe you would require that and minimize his justice. Or on the other hand, we might look at it and say, you know, I know that you forgive, God, I know that you, that you love, and thus to minimize his justice. You see, there's this refrain in the Bible from Exodus 34 where Moses uh, has come down off the mountain to a big disappointment, right? He spent 40 days having the best quiet times of his life, meeting with God face to face, writing down God's word on tablets. And he comes down off the mountain uh, to find Aaron uh, having an idol worshiping party, right? Making a gold calf. And he gets angry. And what's he do? He throws the tablets down, goes back up on the mountain, meets with God again. And God writes the tablets this time. He comes back and, and the Lord meets with him and he wants to reiterate his covenant to remind him of his promise uh, with Moses. And here's what he says. And it, I want you to listen for the character and attributes of who God is in this because they are throughout God's word. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will not by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity on the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Do you see the character of God on display for us? Do you see the attributes of God on display for us? Do you see the tension? The tension exists for Abraham on this mountain. You've got the innocent ram entangled in the thicket. You've got the guilty son on the pile of wood bound to it. And what does God do? He substitutes the innocent one for the guilty one. What does God do with Jesus? 
He does the same thing, doesn't he? There's a substitution. I can remember uh, being at a, a seminary in California uh, about six years ago with a group of pastors, and it was a very theologically diverse group of people. And I overheard a conversation happening where uh, one of the guys was saying, I mean, I can't believe that people believe in penal substitutionary atonement. And what that, that's a fancy word for God, <laughs> penal meaning punishment, uh, that, that God punished Jesus for our sins, right? And I'm thinking, how else could you see Jesus' death, right? How, how else could you take the character of God and make Jesus the ransom for sin. And it was one of those moments where I realized, okay, I'm kind of a fish out of water here, but this is what this passage is about. This is why God goes to links to say that, that he put the ram there instead of his son. Um, but God will not do that. God will put his son there instead of the ram, right? And that's really good news for us to see, to see Jesus as the substitute for what we deserve. Now, when this tension that we're living in with God's holiness and his grace is a tough tension to navigate for us. In fact, the only way that we can navigate it faithfully is by the Spirit's guiding. Because what happens whenever a a church or a movement, um, when they emphasize one part of God's character or God's word over another part of God's character or God's word, do you know what we call that? Heresy. Only the Spirit keeps us from that. So it's not your job to figure that out. It's your job to obey. And when we don't obey, we come back to the Father who forgives and we seek new obedience. Obedience is the only safe place to be with God. It's when we get outside of that kind of circle of blessing under Jesus that we get into trouble, right? And God disciplines those he loves. He brings us back Where's the mystery at in your life right now? Could be you're unemployed or, you know, you're single, you really want to be married. Could be just a family dynamic that's really hard for you to navigate. Somebody who's going through some, something really tough and you just want to rescue them. Could be something that's really hidden in your life that's keeping you in Egypt in bondage right now and you are terrified to confess it. Where's the mystery And what does obedience look like for you right now? Last thing I want to share is this. Third word is sacrifice. A sacrificing God leads to a sacrificial faith. Worship church has always included sacrifice. The only time worship didn't include sacrifice was in the garden. Right? There was no need for the forgiveness of sins in the garden. They walked with God in the cool of the day. They ate of the fruit of the garden. As soon as sin entered the world, what was required for worship? Sacrifice. What's the first thing God does to care for his people in the garden? He kills what? Innocent animals. To to do what? To clothe the shame-filled and guilty couple who have gotten themselves into bondage. God's always been willing to sacrifice part of his creation because humankind, for humankind because we are made in his image. We are distinct from the rest of creation. Sacrifice has always been part of worship. Sacrifice, the sacrifice in the Bible, like here, here's how it would work in, in the Bible, or in the, in the Old Testament. If we were to come in to worship, uh, we'd all have something to offer. 
And it'd be visible, it'd be noisy, it'd be a lamb, it'd be, you know, it'd be, it'd be some type of an animal. They're different, I don't have time to go into all the, the different festivals and, and, and uh, Jewish celebrations that sacrifice and worship would be about, but there was one thing for sure. If you're gonna come to worship, you're, it's gonna cost you something because it costs God everything. And we don't connect with God's heart unless it costs us something. Think about this, the, the things that have been, I, I'll just share a story and this was not in my notes, but I gave my brother a car uh, whenever he was, um, I don't know, this three or four years ago. Didn't cost him anything, I fixed all the repairs, got it ready for him. One thing led to another over a couple months. I have a great relationship with my brother, but he ended up losing the car. Like it got towed away, he didn't pay the fees. It's in a junkyard somewhere now. When it doesn't cost you anything, you don't care. There are many people that sit in pews at churches all across the world who don't care about Jesus. It costs you something. And this isn't a plea to say, hey, fill up the plate with your money. I'm just saying for your sake, what does sacrifice look like in your walk with Jesus? Because if there's none there, there's no relationship. He gives us everything. And our worship, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, is to be living sacrifices. Listen to what Paul says. This is after Jesus' blood, Hebrews 9.22, has spoken the final word. Blood no longer has to be shed for the forgiveness of sin because Jesus lives. Romans 12.1 and 2 says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul is saying this, that the time for the animal to be put up on the altar is gone. And now by faith, because the Holy Spirit lives in us, we get up on the altar day in, day out and live our lives in an open way before the Lord offering our very lives as his disciples, taking up our cross daily. Not for our salvation, not for it. Jesus did that. But for the sake of the world and our joy in his walk, we can't connect with his heart unless we are these living sacrifices, right? This is what the life of the Christian is. This is why when, when, when there are some disciples in the gospels that, that wanna, they wanna follow Jesus, but they wanna get their own stuff done and make it safe first, he says, you gotta stay. You're not ready. Discipleship is costly, not for your justification. No, not for that at all, but for your transformation. You've been saved, but you've not been finished. So our lives are about getting up on that altar day in, day out, and the Holy Spirit leads us to that. Church, let's pray together. Father, thank you for, uh, thank you for sending Jesus. Never be able to say that enough, Lord. Never be able to declare the beauty of Christ enough. Can never sing long enough. Can never sacrifice deep enough can never, never empty ourselves enough to show the worth of what you've given us in Christ. Lord, I, I, I ask that, uh, that you do something in us today. 
Lord, we are all on a path toward conformity toward the world unless you intervene. We are all on a path to looking like the sons and daughters of destruction unless you intervene. And by God's grace, by the spirit, you have intervened because we've heard your word and you've awakened our hearts and we want to follow Jesus. God, would you just show us that the threats of the world, the threats of the world are empty threats when we're in Christ. They seem so loud, Lord. But the threat of an eternity without you is the real threat. Lord, you know who belongs to you and who doesn't. And my plea, God, is that we would give our lives to the thing you actually require. That that would be our main thing. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.